on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. How the hell are you? Uh, no, Sally again this week. One more week's rest for Sal. She should be back with us next week here on the podcast. Well, today we're tackling inequality. It has become the scourge of our age as the growing gap between the few haves, the 1% that own enormous amounts of the world's wealth, and the rest of us grows and is consolidated by the power of politics and self-interest, which seem to govern so much of what happens in the world at the moment. So how do we go about addressing it? That's what we're going to talk about with Ben Phillips. He's the author of a book called How to Fight Inequality, and importantly, why that fight needs you. And he's here with us on The Job. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life nor liberty and the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists. The unmistakable voice there of Martin Luther King Jr. and his commentary on equality and the opportunities there to actually address the real inequalities in society by dealing with inequality in the economy. And there was a powerful statement that continues to be important today. And it's one that's addressed in a book that has just been released and one I highly recommend that you all check out. It's called How to Fight Inequality and Why That Fight Needs You. And it's written by Ben Phillips. Ben has been a long-time activist, writer and thinker on the issue of inequality in our time. And his book is not just a, a tale of woe about what's wrong with the world, what it actually is is a how-to guide on how you as an individual can uh, have an impact in changing the dynamic, changing the equation of inequality in the world. And Ben joins us on the line from Rome in Italy today. G'day, Ben. Welcome to On The Job. Thanks for having me, Francis. Great to be with you. Firstly, I want to hear a little bit about your awakening on this. And I guess you became politically aware at a time where apartheid was coming to an end and there was an opportunity there to address inequality as the South African state reset itself for a new future. Tell us about your experience and what you were doing. Sure. Well, I grew up in England. As a kid, I was obsessed with South Africa and determined to get there. So as a teenager, I would argue with the other kids about the injustice of apartheid. And it's kind of astonishing now that we look back and, and you know, young people almost won't believe this, but there was an argument about apartheid, that if you were against apartheid in Western countries in the 80s and 90s, you were arguing with people that it was wrong. And so I was one of those kids who was really determined to see the end of it. I was so shocked and horrified that it was there. And in one argument with a group of kids who I think had family who were white South Africans, and they said to me, oh, but the thing is, Ben, you'll never have to be there. So you'll never have to experience it. You're not taking any real risk. And I said, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to South Africa and I'm going to do what I can to to help. So, 
kind of crazy teenager in an argument, you know, insisting that they're going to do what they're going to do. And I did, because that's what teenagers do. And that's what teenagers are doing now. And with all of the, the campaigns that young people lead today. So aged 18, I rocked up in a township in South Africa in 1994. Now, under the old apartheid system, black people had to live in townships and white people had to live in the cities or the suburbs. So people were, were geographically divided by law. Mandela became president in June of 1994. I moved in to South Africa in September of 1994. So the country was free. The laws around apartheid had been removed. And so legally, there was no restriction on who could live anywhere. But when I arrived, I realised that I was the white person of Mamelodi. Mamelodi was the main township of Pretoria. And because it was next to the capital city, had played a leading role in the fight against apartheid. So people thought it was a bit strange, you know, that I was, I was there. But what was wonderful was the welcome that people gave me, the welcome that the community uh, really brought me in and showed me what they'd been through, showed me how it was that they had managed to bring down apartheid by holding together, by standing firm, by people's power. And they took me to hear Nelson Mandela in a stadium. And he was my hero and still is. And so to be in that stadium with 30,000 people listening to Mandela was something else. But two things happened there. The first, as I listened to him, it confirmed he was a hero. But the second, and this is more important, and this is really what the book is about. As I looked around the stadium, I realised that I wasn't in the presence of one hero, I was in the presence of 30,000 heroes. Because apartheid had not been brought down by one man or by a few. Indeed, there were decades where the entire ANC political leadership was either in prison or in exile. So the struggle was led and won in practice by teachers, by priests, by school children, by trade unionists, by women's groups. It was ordinary people that conquered apartheid. It was their power. And Desmond Tutu, I, I later read something that Desmond Tutu wrote, and it seems really outrageous what he said, but it's also quite beautiful. He said, you know, Nelson Mandela was just a pebble on the beach, a beautiful pebble, but nonetheless, just a pebble. And what he meant was that change doesn't come from these individual icons. They really embody a bigger change, one by a larger group. And so in the book, what I try to rediscover and capture is that spirit seen not just there in the defeat of apartheid, but seen time and time throughout history, that whenever systems of inequality have been beaten, it has always and only been through people power. So let's have a look at the long arc of history. Has inequality always been a feature of societies from ancient times to now? Has it always been a design feature of societies in the way that people have organised themselves? Not in the way we live today. So there's an argument that's made that says, hey, you know, you guys, you just want everyone to earn the exact same thing. You think that if someone is doing advanced robotics 
or advanced surgery that they should make the exact same wage as somebody in a supermarket. Nobody is arguing that, and there's never been a society where that's the case. Now, some people say that in hunter-gatherer societies, for example, we may have had what's close to pure equality, but we don't know. We don't know. In all recorded history of settled societies, that's not something we've seen. We've seen difference. But there's a difference in a kind of difference. And here's what I mean. There was a survey done of Americans when they asked them, what do you think should be the multiple of how much the boss gets compared to the workers? So most Democrats said something around eight or nine. And most Republicans said something around 17, 19 to 1, something like that. That's where the averages came out. Now, this sounds like a huge difference, doesn't it? That one is saying a bit less than 10 to 1, one is saying a bit less than 20 to 1. Sounds like there's a big divide in America between one group and another group. Here's the facts. The actual divide, the multiple between the bosses and the workers today in America, is around 300 to 1. In other words, if America was to move to what most Republican voters, I'm not talking about the politicians, the ordinary voters wanted, you would see a revolution in inequality. So this model that we have today is extraordinary. It is not normal for the top 1% of a society to have the majority of the wealth. That is not normal. That's not how things used to be. And so we have had periods across history where we've been much fairer. Something terrible happened in around about the late 70s, early 80s. And that was four or five decades of worsening inequality. And that has not just been a mathematical thing. It's affected everything. It's affected crime. It's affected people's sense of identity. It's affected trust between communities. You can model things like in more unequal societies, the number of people who work as security guards is way, way higher. What that signifies is that when you have a divided society, people cease to trust each other. They cease to see each other as equals, as fellow citizens. So something really bleak took place over the past four or five decades. But there have been moments, and we saw it in Latin America in the early 2000s, there have been moments where people have pushed back. And this right now, this COVID crisis, although it has worsened inequality even more dramatically than it was before, this could be a moment where if we seize it, we could turn things around. You write in your book that there's a lot of acknowledgement now, even from institutions that previously seem antithetical to the idea of reducing inequality, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, others, major institutions that inequality is a problem. But there are less signs of them actually doing anything about it. And it's not really good enough for people to sit around and wait for policy change, that change has to happen. It has to be driven from below. Explain what you mean by that. So, in short, when we look at what the IMF has said, what the World Bank has said, what global institutions have said about inequality, when all is said and done, it's been said and not done. We've seen every country in the world pledge to reduce inequality. That was in the Sustainable Development Goals, agreed in 2015 by every country in the world. Sustainable Development Goal number 10 pledges them all to reduce inequality. If you tried to list out every country that has pledged to reduce inequality, you couldn't do so without running out of breath. But if you tried to count on your hands 
the number of countries that are reducing inequality, you would have fingers to spare even if you only used one hand. That's the contradiction. Now, why? Part of the reason is because it isn't actually promises and pledges and it isn't evidence and it isn't being right that guides what governments do. This is a sad thing. I was at this meeting where I was the only person from organisations, from civil society, from movements. Everybody else was an academic. And they're clever, clever people. You know, there were these Greek letters on the board. I didn't really understand uh, the half of it. And I put up my hand and I said, OK, I'm just trying to understand what we're doing here. I think what we're trying to do is we're setting out the damage that inequality causes and the policies that reduce inequality. And our theory is that we write this down, we give it to decision makers, and then they will address inequality. Everyone's like, yeah, of course, that's what we're doing. Well, why do you have not ask? So I said, OK, can someone give me an example of where that's worked? silence. I said, it doesn't have to be a recent one, doesn't have to be a near one. Any continent, any country, any time in the past 200 years, where giving evidence to decision makers has made them reduce inequality. Pause. Then they all burst out laughing, because they realised there wasn't one. It's never happened that way. That on every occasion on which inequality is reduced, and inequality has been reduced, so we have won in the past, but on every occasion, the reason why it's happened is because people pushed for it, even, even when there were good leaders. You know, Lyndon B. Johnson, President Lyndon B. Johnson, famously said to Martin Luther King, look, I know what I have to do, but you have to make me do it. So whenever we look back in history and we ask, what was the process through which decision makers came to take the actions that would reduce inequality, the pressure from below was the constant. And I couldn't find an example where it had not been driven by that pressure from below. And as you said, there is an acknowledgement from those who are in the 1% that this change is coming. I want you to listen to this grab from, from Warren Buffett in 2017, who has been very open and very public, one of the wealthiest men mm. in the world, about the need for change. And you've said, I've heard you say before, that if you're born in the United States today, you've won the lottery right there, Absolutely. right there. At the same time, as you look around the country, there seem to be a lot of people who don't believe that, who yeah. don't feel that they're participating, and they're angry, and they're hurt, and they're scared. Why is that? And I don't blame them. I don't blame them, because they see the Forbes 400 that had 92 billion of aggregate wealth in 1982 that now have 2.4 trillion. So they've seen that top 400. It's a changing group, but it represents the people at the top. They've seen them go up 25 for one in wealth since 1982. And you can see it in the income tax figures and a whole bunch of places. So the gain in wealth in this country has disproportionately gone to the super rich. And, and a lot of people have gotten left behind, which should not be the case in a country that our country has $57,000 or $58,000 of GDP per capita. That is a lot of money per capita. But the distribution has gotten more pushed toward the top in recent decades. It's not because those people are evil. It's just because of the natural function of the marketplace. But it's up to the government actually to do something about that. So that's Warren Buffett talking to MSNBC in 2017. So Ben Phillips, he acknowledges that the super wealthy are increasingly becoming more powerful and consolidating their wealth. But he doesn't really offer a solution there. He says government should be the one to change it. What's your take on what Buffett says? He, he seems well-intentioned, and there are others like him, like Gates and others who talk that language, but we're not seeing the change that should come with it. So it is correct 
the government is the vehicle through which you reduce inequality. So inequality has never just been reduced by community groups doing voluntary action. It's not big enough. You need the scale of government to bring that change. So, for example, if you want to have all of your people be able to read and all of your people finish school, only happens when government does it. If you want to stop mothers dying in childbirth, if you want to ensure that people don't go broke for being sick or get sick for being broke, then you have to do that through the vehicle of government. So that part is correct. The point, though, is this. Government is really just the mechanism. The drive to push government has to come from us. Now, if we don't push, there are others who are pushing. And those others from the 1% are pushing for a less equal society. And they've been very, very successful in doing so. The US is a great example in this, in that it had a much more equal society from the 1930s to the 1970s. You can look at the policy mix that explains why, and you see things like policies to increase wages, policies to increase public services, fair taxation, policies to tackle discrimination. You, th these are the kind of range of policies you see. But here's a crucial thing you also see. You see that what's called trade union density, that is the proportion of people who are a member of a trade union, was much higher in those times. And that is why in the 1950s and the 1960s, under Republican as well as Democrat presidents, US administrations pursue policies that reduced inequality. Once you get to the 80s, 90s and beyond, even Democrat or Republican governments do not take actions which reduce inequality. And a key part of that is that ordinary people were no longer powerful enough. That is why it's so important, for example, that people join a trade union. When you join a union, you don't just make your company fairer, you make your country fairer. This is statistically demonstrated world over. It's not just about unions, though. People also need to join neighbourhood associations. People need to be part of community groups, social movements, women's organisations, progressive faith groups. And then when those groups come together in what the Reverend William Barber calls fusion coalitions, that's when you have real power. So if we want the policy mix, we have to have the people mix. And the people mix is us. Give us an example of that. I was hearing you speak in another forum about A. Philip Randolph, a person who mm. came to prominence in the United States in the 60s as the civil rights movement was taking off. But like Dr. King, his focus was as much on the economic justice that people needed as much as the, the civil rights justice that was, I guess, the top line battle that was going on on the streets. Tell us about him and, and why he was important. Yeah, so A. Philip Randolph was a trade union leader of the ticket collectors of the tramway. So he was at that Venn diagram in the, in the overlapping circles of trade union movement, black organisations and activist groups. And those three together, their coordinated power is what won. Now, you mentioned another interesting thing around the civil rights movement. And it's really, really important for people to know this. The civil rights story is deliberately mistold to kids today because what many people have begun to believe is that the civil rights movement was only about 
discrimination in restaurants, for example, or stopping the most egregious laws which prevented people from voting. But the civil rights movement was always, from the very beginning, also about a truly economic equality. Martin Luther King himself said, there is not much point if now a man is able to enter a restaurant but can't afford a burger. The second key thing about the civil rights movement that really important everybody knows is that it was a movement that challenged power. So a few lines are taken about kids holding hands or about judging, you know, not uh, from the colour of a man's skin, but the content of, of character. A few lines are taken from a few, few speeches of Martin Luther King to imply that it was all just about why don't we get along? But Martin Luther King himself said, nothing we have won has been without protest. It has always required uh, pressure, the forming of a compelling power to press. And there's one third thing to know about the civil rights movement, which is that it was massively controversial and difficult, and in many times unpopular. So right now, for example, people will say, why can't Black Lives Matter be more like Martin Luther King? But Martin Luther King himself, in 1966, 63% of Americans said that Martin Luther King was divisive. So people take exactly the wrong lessons from Martin Luther King. They think that you need to be totally sweet and upset nobody, not go for power, just all get along, and only talk about legal discrimination. In fact, he ruffled feathers, he built power, and he challenged economic inequality. But even more importantly than all of that was that he did so as part of a movement. And that movement transformed the country in making it a more fair place. A strange thing, though, is this, is how much we see echoes of that model, of that process, when we look across the world. I want to give like three, what look like totally, totally different examples. And then it will be clear how much we have in common in terms of what works. So example number one, Latin America in the 2000s, eight countries reduce inequality. You see inequality reduced between races, between genders, between regions, between economic groups. They follow that policy mix. They increase the wages, they expand public services, they make tax fair, they redistribute land, they tackle discrimination. All comes from social movements. It comes from the landless workers movement in Brazil, it comes from the indigenous movement in Bolivia, and it's those movements that pressure and continue to force the governments to act. Newly independent countries in Africa and Asia in the 50s, 60s. For example, Ghana. Ghana gets independence not just as a movement saying we need to replace foreign leaders with local ones, but as a trade union-driven movement demanding equal rights, demanding, for example, free education. When they took control of the cocoa uh, product, which had all the wealth of that been going to foreigners and elite, when they took control of that, they used that to fund free education, first for the kids, the cocoa workers, and then for the kids of the whole country. And the third example, and this is the one that surprises people, Scandinavia. Everybody thinks now, right, Scandies, they're just lovely people. Maybe the reason why their country is so equal is because those guys, it's just their culture. It's just who they are. It's something to do with blonde hair and listening to ABBA. Absolutely not true. At the beginning of the 20th century, people were fleeing Scandinavia, fleeing from famine, okay, in a situation analogous to the, the Irish fleeing from the British-imposed hunger there. 
Now, why? Why would Scandies be leaving this beautiful, equal society? Because it wasn't a beautiful, equal society. It was a cruel, feudal one. But then the workers started to organise and they started to get together with the small farmers and parts of the church started to work with them and they started to challenge the elite. What did the elite do? They organised strike breakers. They funded militia. They shot and killed strikers. But because ordinary people held together, they pushed through. In other words, the equal society that we see in Scandinavia today is not a triumph of culture. It's a triumph of organisation. Anybody could do it. They did it, and so can we. Indeed, in the past, we all have. We all, in every country, there's examples of how people got together, made their country more equal. We just have to reclaim those memories and remind people that it was us that did it, and it's us that will do it again. So we need the troublemakers, we need the rebels, the people who are prepared to put it on the line to make things change. But we need the storytellers, and I'm fascinated that you talk about this, because working within the Australian trade union movement like I do, often the storytelling bit gets lost, and it's one of those things that we need to get better at. But give people a sense of why storytelling is important in this mix to, you know, to force the needle on change. So folks who work in policy are very interested in policy. The vast majority of people aren't. The vast majority of people understand their world in stories, in narrative. And so the most successful social movements have always been those that have had an underpinning moral story. It's not a coincidence, for example, that in England, the phrase welfare state wasn't invented by a policy expert or by a politician, but by the Archbishop of Canterbury as a moral leader. There's a beautiful Mexican movie, I hope people have seen it, if not, do go see it, called Roma. And Roma is about the story of a domestic servant. And the reason I mention it is because it was after this movie came out and became hugely popular in Mexico and all over the world that a law to strengthen the rights of domestic workers was passed for the first time in Mexico. Now, how many policy recommendations are there in the movie Roma? Zero. But what it did was it changed the narrative, it changed the story. And whenever we look back and we find when we won, we didn't win only through evidence. Being right is not enough. Now, evidence is really important. I don't want to live in the kind of Donald Trump universe where we pretend that climate change doesn't exist. He knows it does, by the way. His golf courses in Scotland, they're insured and protected against climate change. He knows. These guys are liars. They're not fools. But I don't want to live in an evidence-free universe. It matters. Climate change is real. Smoking causes cancer. You know, these things are, there are, there are facts that matter. But if on our side, we have all of the facts, all of the evidence, all of the numbers, all of the statistics, and on their side, They have all of the emotion, all of the excitement, all of the energy. We will lose, they will win. It's not a coincidence that the most effective advocate for neoliberalism, this is this four decades of policies that have shafted ordinary people, were not their intellectuals, people like Milton Friedman. It was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a movie star. That's why he was so effective as a campaigner. So when we see how we got beaten by our opponents, we can't just be angry. We also have to get even. We also have to take a leaf out of their book and of our own history of success too. 
which is that if you want to change a society, you need new stories. We're living in a time of crisis and there's been a lot of writing about crisis capitalism and I even back to Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, over 15 years ago, how capitalism and big capital has exploited moments of political and economic crisis in countries to install stringent monetarist policies that turn uh, what might have been communities working towards a level of equality back into very dog-eat-dog capitalist communities. How do we win this battle around our moment of crisis to make sure that doesn't happen but it moves the other way? So firstly we should acknowledge that in this COVID crisis the initial hit has been really severe. We have seen, according to the ILO, workers lose $3.7 trillion. And we've seen, according to Forbes magazine, billionaires gain $3.9 trillion. So we've seen a transfer of about $4 trillion from workers to billionaires. It used to be, before this crisis, that about 7 in 10 people lived in countries where inequality was getting worse. And now, during this crisis, it's probably 10 in 10 not just from the health impacts, or even not mainly from the health impacts of COVID, but from the knock-on economic and social impacts that have happened. So people are really hurting. Ordinary people are really hurting. The rich are milking it. Uh, Jeff Bezos, $60 billion richer just from this crisis. But we do know that crises can be opportunities for change. The thing is, I compare it to heat, crises to heat. If you think about glass or metal, they're hard and immovable. And that's why the ironmonger and the glassblower, they put them under flame. And when they put them under flame, these hard structures become bendable and movable. But in which direction do they bend? Well, that depends on who's knocking them, in which direction. When we look back at the Wall Street crash, 1929 Wall Street crash, it is true that it's very hard to imagine the very progressive Franklin D. Roosevelt government without that Wall Street crash of 1929. But the Wall Street crash of 1929 was also really fundamental in enabling fascism in Central Europe. When we look at the 1970s crash, the oil crisis, that was the one that birthed neoliberalism. The 2008 crisis, which really proved that neoliberalism had failed, didn't enable a resurgence of fairer economics. It enabled the resurgence of the far right. So who knows what will happen with this crisis? The thing is that what we mustn't do is fall into either place. One place is a false notion of constant progress, that everything will be okay, that maybe things have got bad, maybe we're looking at extremes of inequality, but now that we've had the COVID crisis, this will be a moment that will pull us out. Some people imagine it like a kind of World War II moment, we'll all emerge with fairer societies. We cannot assume that at all. Here's another danger that people say, we're screwed. It's getting worse and worse, the disaster capitalists will move in, there's nothing we can do, we just have to watch. Now, both of those are immensely dangerous, both the kind of don't worry, it will be all right. But also the fatalistic, it's all going to go wrong. And neither of them are true. It really is the case that we can sometimes feel like spectators. We feel like we're watching other people play this game. But we are on the pitch. We're not in the seats. We're on the pitch. We are in play. And whether or not the COVID economic crisis becomes a moment 
that leads to people organising, people challenging power, building power together and building a new story that pushes decision makers, compels them to build a fairer society that works better for everybody, or whether this becomes a moment that the super-rich exploit, where they drive us against each other, where they offer solutions that instead of feeding people's stomachs, feed their prejudices, and they coalesce around this horrible new coalition between the money right and the hatred right, what used to be called the vicious and the avaricious, or that joke about how the billionaire says to the white worker, you know, be careful of the black worker because he's after, he's after your cookies as the guy munches the entire packet. Whether they get away with that again is contingent on what we do. And so the most important lesson from history and the most important lesson that I try to emphasise in the book is that if you don't want to end up in a society that does get worse and worse, you've got to get involved but get involved not as an individual hero thinking that you can do it by yourself. Get involved with others. It starts with making friends in your workplace, making friends in your community, building those community and neighbourhood groups, building up those trade unions. If you don't like your trade union, join it and make it better. If there isn't one, start one. If you don't think much of the groups in your neighbourhood, begin one or join them and make them better. And it starts there. It starts local and it starts with us. And then we build from there and from there. This is the way in which our ancestors won in the past. And this is the only way in which we'll win again. Author and activist Ben Phillips with us here on The Job. His book is called How to Fight Inequality and Why That Fight Needs You. It is a compelling book, only 150 pages long, but there is so much useful and powerful information in there. And we thank Ben for getting up early in the morning for us in Rome to join us on the podcast. That's it for this week's episode in lockdown. Francis Leach signing off. Sally will join us again soon. When we can get together again soon. Who knows when that will be? Uh, Don't forget to give us a rating on whatever platform that you're listening It helps other people find the podcast and helps uh, share the information and the inspiration. So make sure you do that for us. And we will catch you for our next edition of On The Job. Bye for now.